Father, we thank you that you hear us, that you are more powerful than anything that may be weighing on our minds this morning, and that you do speak to us through your words. As we worship through the study of your word this morning, would you speak to us? Would you give us the humility we need to be changed by you? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, there's an age-old question that I can remember from before I was even on the playground at school. I just remember as a kid having these discussions with my brother, and if you're, most likely if you're a boy, you're going to know this question, uh, who would win in a fight, right? Do anybody as a kid remember those kinds of questions? And you come up with different scenarios, different comic book heroes or baseball players or whoever. In fact, they have a whole series, Polar Bear versus Grizzly Bear, um, Komodo Dragon versus King Cobra, Killer Whale versus Great White Shark. There's like 12 books like this. So kids just kind of naturally ask this question, who's going to win in a fight? Uh, if you're a sports fan, you guys remember uh, Rocky Balboa, the sixth one. They kind of paired Rocky against a boxer from a different age, right? So for most of us, it would be like Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, who would win in a fight, right? Take both guys at their prime, and you go back and forth about who's going to win. Of course, we know the most famous one, right? We know the most famous one. What is it? Batman versus Superman, right? Who, who would win in a fight? And we all know the answer is Batman because, because he's Batman, all right? All right, because he's Batman. So we know Batman wins, no matter what Stephen thinks. All right, so this morning we come to a situation in Scripture where, where we're going to be comparing some characters together. We're in 1 Samuel 17, and this is a story that I think most of you are going to be familiar with. Even if you didn't grow up going to church, you can finish this sentence. David and Goliath, right? We all know this story, or at least we know about this story. And for most of our lives, we've thought about this story in terms of this is, hey, this is the underdog versus the top gun, right? And we're taught that this story, what it means is, hey, if you believe in God, you have faith in God, you can take on big things, right? And that's kind of the moral of the story that we've been taught over the years. But I think as we look at the passage this morning, we're going to see that there is actually a whole lot more going on than what we what we uh, normally think of. And in fact, as you really pay attention to what the writer is saying and what he's doing with what he's saying, we begin to see some really cool things jump out through the text. Now, I got to be honest, uh, this comparison stuff that, that I'm, I have for us to look at this morning is not my own. There's a man way smarter than I am named Abraham Kuravila, and I had the chance to hear him speak, and I had the chance to hear him share this. And so uh, he, uh, this is some of his material, but I've, I've done some additional work on this. But a lot of this comparison is coming from him, um, so I'm not that smart, right? So don't give me that much credit, but I hear creativity is forgetting where you stole it from, right? So... Um, <laughs> I haven't forgotten yet, but one of these days I will. So thank you, Mr. Curavila, for allowing us to use this. And as we look at chapter 17, we, we want to think back. Last week we were in chapter 8, where Israel has asked for a king. They come to Samuel and say, hey, we want a king. But we know that this was not God's timing. God had already predicted, and he'd already foreseen that one day the nation of Israel would want a king, like all the other nations, but this was not God's timing. But God tells Samuel, he says, look, give him a king. So Samuel gives him a king. In chapter 9, we read about a man named Saul. What we read about Saul is that he, from the shoulders up, he was taller than everyone else in Israel, okay? Which, not a, great, not a great feat, considering everyone in Israel was about five feet to five and a half feet tall at that time. So he's maybe about six feet tall. So, but we come across this man, Saul, who's anointed king, 
and he becomes king, and he starts out very humbly, but things don't go that well for very long. It starts out with some people who don't really want Saul as king, so he ends up going into battle, defeating one of Israel's enemies, and then all the people are like, oh, maybe this isn't so bad, let's make him king. And as I said, he starts out humbly, but it's not long before he turns, and he starts to become full of himself, and he starts to make some decisions that don't honor God. And in 1 Samuel 15, after he's disobeyed God, God says, go and face the Ammonites, completely wipe them out. He says, I want you to kill every single one of them, even their animals, burn them to the ground. Because what they're going to do is, if you don't, they're going to lead you guys back into worshiping false gods. So God tells Saul to take the army and do this, and Saul doesn't do it. He leaves him alive, and Samuel the prophet comes and he finds all, all these people still alive, and the sheep are still alive, the king's still alive. And he's like, Saul, what are you doing? God gave you an instruction. Saul's like, oh, yeah, I did that. And he's like, uh, I hear sheep outside, and I know you guys didn't bring those sheep with you, with the army. So what's the deal? And he's like, oh, yeah, well, I was going to sacrifice. See, what had happened was I was going to sacrifice them. Uh, and, uh, you know, I listened to the people, and Samuel says, that's it. God's done with you. And I love this verse, one of my favorite couple verses. Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings as much as sacrifice uh, and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. And then he goes on and he tells Saul, because you have not obeyed, God has removed you as king. He has rejected you as king. And from that point on, uh, we follow the rise of of a boy named David. And in chapter 16, we read about Samuel being told to go to this house in Bethlehem to a man named Jesse and to look at his sons because one of his sons is going to be the next king. And Jesse brings out his first three sons. We read about Eliab, who is taller, bigger, stronger, faster than all the other boys. And and Jesse thinks, surely this is the one who's going to be king. And he goes through all of Jesse's sons, and Samuel's like, man, I'm just not feeling it. Like, God's not speaking to me about which one of these boys is supposed to be king. Do you have another son? And they say, yeah, we got this little runt of the litter named David, uh, but he's out with the sheep. You don't even want to bother with him. He's like, bring him here. And when, when Samuel sees him, God says, don't look as man looks. Don't look at the outside. Look at his heart. This is a man after God's own heart. And David is anointed king. And then we pick up in chapter 17. In chapter 17, uh, we have 58 verses. 58 verses to tell us this story. David goes to see his brothers out on the battlefield. They've gone to war against the Philistines. From time to time, these neighboring armies, these neighboring nations would rise up against Israel and attack them. And so Saul has taken the army of Israel out to fight off the Philistines. And David's dad comes to him and says, hey, I need you to take provisions to your brother and go see how they're doing. Bring me back a report. So David leaves the flocks. He comes to the front lines. And when he gets there, everybody's in their battle formation. And he goes to find his brothers. And when he finds his brothers on the front lines, he sees this giant of a man standing there, defying the nation of Israel, calling out insults to the people of Israel and to their God. And David looks around, he's, he's a little boy, we don't know exactly how old he is, but he's probably 13 to 16 years old. He's not a grown man, but he's, he's not a little bitty boy. And so we know he's, he's somewhere in his teenage years, and he looks and he's, looks at the guys next to him, he's like, guys, who's going to do something about this? Like, you wouldn't let him speak to your mother that way. You're going to let him talk about your God like that? Who's going to step up and do something? And everybody's like, looking at their 
shoes on the ground, shuffling their feet, and well, you know, I'm not big enough, I'm not strong enough. And he's like, well, what's going to be done for the man that does something? And they tell him, hey, Saul, the king, has said, whoever kills this giant gets to become my son-in-law, gets to marry my daughters, and gets unimaginable wealth. And David's brother says, hey, you have such a wicked heart. You just came to see us all die here today. And David's like, anyways, so tell me again, what's going to happen to the man who kills this giant? How come none of you are taking the king up on his offer? You're the army of Israel, the, li- uh, the army of the living God. And Saul hears about this. Saul hears David asking these questions, and Saul says, hey, bring me that boy. Bring me that boy. I want to talk to him. And David's like, man, you're Saul. You're the king. Go out and do it. David, Saul says, I can't do it. David's like, come on, I'll do it. Let me do it. And Saul says, you can't go against him. You can't go against this giant. He's fully armed. He's like a tank of a man. He's got full armor on. He's got all these weapons. All you have is your staff, your, your shepherd's staff. You've got a, a pouch and a sling. It's like, you can't go against this guy. Put on my armor. Put on my armor. So remember, Saul's a head taller from the shoulders up, taller than everyone else. David is a teenager, not fully grown yet, and everyone at that age, that time is five to five and a half feet tall. So David puts on the armor, and he can't even walk in it. He can't even walk, and he says, I can't go out like this. I'm not, I'm not going out like this. I don't need this stuff. I don't need this stuff. I got everything I need. He says, I'm not trusting in these weapons like Goliath is. I'm not trusting in the weapons like you are. My trust, my weapon is God himself. God will fight this battle. And I know God will fight this battle because God has fought these battles for me before. God's fought these battles for me before. When I was a shepherd, the bear or the lion would come and grab one of my sheep and I would go after it and I would, I would kill it. I would strike it down and kill it. And if it reared up against me, I would grab it by the fur and I would kill it. This Philistine's going to be no different. God handed them over to me. He's going to hand me this Philistine over to me. So David goes out, and Saul sees, Saul sees this, uh, excuse me, Goliath sees this boy coming towards him. And he's like, what, is there no man in Israel? You come at me with sticks? Am I a dog? And David calls out to him. David says, hey, you come at me with sword and with spear and with javelin, and I come at you with the name of the living God. And you said you're going to give our carcasses to the birds of the air, but today I'm going to deliver you to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. I'm going to kill you. And Goliath gets up and it says that David ran to the battle line. And as he runs to the battle line, he pulls out one of those stones and he grabs his sling and he flings it and he strikes Goliath. Goliath falls to the ground. David runs over, pulls out Goliath's massive sword, cuts his head off, kills him. Finally, the men of Israel are strengthened and they run out and they chase down the Philistines and they're handed the battle that day. That's the story of David and Goliath. That's the story. And what what I wonder is why would God take 58 verses, 58 verses to tell us one thing. David killed Goliath, right? That's the one thing. That's what most of us walk away with. There's only three verses that are actually describing the actual battle between David and Goliath. Why so much? Why, why 58 verses? There's got to be something more going on. And I think as we compare the characters of this story, we're going to see what's really going on here. Uh, we're going to compare their experience, their stature, their resources, and their experience. 
And we're going to look and we're going to see what God is actually trying to tell us through the scripture this morning. The first one I want us to look at is the giant. The giant. And we're going to look at his stature. Verse 4 of chapter 17 tells us this. It says, Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet, bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. So he's nine feet nine inches tall. The average man at this time is five to five and a half feet tall. I got my son in here today. He wanted to be in here to hear about David and Goliath. Buddy, come on up here. Come on up. Now, Bear, good-looking boy here, isn't he? Give him a hand. Yeah, he's a good-looking kid. So he's about three and a half feet tall, right? Austin, I know I didn't prepare you for this, but come on up. Austin, how tall are you? Six three. Six three. All right. So this is a fairly good comparison. This would be the this would be the average man of that time, right? And this is Goliath. Now imagine a teenager, right? So a little bit smaller than that. So we're going to say from here, nine feet, nine inches tall. You get, you get the impression, you get the idea. So as far as stature, I'd say it's kind of on Goliath's side, right? When we look on the outside, I think, I think Goliath's got the upper hand on this one. Thank you, guys. Y'all have a seat. Give them a hand. Now let's look at what it says about his resources, what are, his, what are Goliath's resources? And in fact, what we're going to see is this is actually the longest description of military gear in the Old Testament. We find it written about Goliath in verse 5. Uh, it says he was 9 feet 9 inches tall, and he wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was a bronze armor uh, on his shins and bronze, a bronze sword slung between his shoulder. Some translations may say javelin. We're not 100% sure what's there. Uh, but we know it's something pointy and sharp. His spear, in addition, uh, his spear shaft was like a weaver's beam. So it's about 12 feet long. And the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. All right, so Goliath, basically, we're describing a human tank at this point. He's well armored, and he's got lots and lots of weapons. And we see that Goliath... uh, has this mentality of, man, if I'm armored and I've got weapons, then I can win this battle. I'm big enough. I'm smart enough. I'm strong enough. There's nobody that could possibly beat me. We see that in addition to the discussion on his stature and his resources, that he has, uh, he emphasizes uh, the force of his intimidation and the the suspense is building in the story. Who's going to come out and battle this armored Hulk? Who could possibly defeat this giant of a man? It wasn't just Goliath's stature and resources that were threatening. It was his considerable experience that made him lethal to tangle with. Look at verse 33. Let's see how Saul describes him to David. Saul replied, you can't go and fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. He's been a warrior since he was young. So what's he saying? He's saying, David, look, hey, I appreciate the spirit, kid, but this guy has been a warrior, a fighting man, a killing machine since he, he was your age. There's no way that you stand a chance. You can't go out and fight against him. And we see that he's been this, this man of war, and you can't but help but notice that as Goliath continues to taunt the people later in verses 8 and verses 10, he says, hey, where's a man? I need a man. I need an experienced man to come down and fight me. Where is the man who will fight me. I want someone who's accomplished. I want someone who's done something. 
someone who's mature. And so we look and we see that his stature, nine feet, nine inches tall, his resources, he's got helmet, armor, sword, and spear, his experience, he's been a warrior since he was young. Everything seems to be stacked in his favor. Now, one has to wonder why an entire army would fear this one guy. Like, if it's me, I'm thinking, hey, uh, we reject your proposal and we'll fight you 10,000 to one. Like, how about we just do that, right? Five guys get around Goliath. Hopefully one of us gets lucky and can take him out. What's happening here is something much bigger. Why did they have to accept Goliath's challenge? And this leads us to something more in this passage. You see, for Goliath to offer that challenge, it was not just a physical challenge. It was a theological challenge. Goliath's saying, hey, not only are my weapons, my armor, my experience, and my height on my side, I believe that my God is on my side. The Philistines worship a God named Dagon. And he says, you know what? My God, Dagon, is bigger than your God. And I'm standing here. Come prove me wrong. Come prove me wrong. And, And if I win, then you serve us. And that word service has very, very deep theological connotations in the history of Israel. How many times throughout the Old Testament are the people of Israel told, choose this day whom you will serve. So when he says you will serve us, he doesn't mean you'll become our slaves. He means you will serve us and our God. You will worship the same God we worship. He's confident not only in his own abilities and his own resources, he's confident in his God. And where are the people of Israel? The armies of Israel have run and fled, and they hide in their tents when, when Goliath comes out, presumably being led by the king who's hiding in his tent. There is a very, very deep theological undertone to this story. And in fact, it's not just an undertone. It jumps out to us. The threat of the giant was more than just an overgrown, overdressed, belligerent local trying to taunt his neighbors. This was a battle of the gods. So why don't they accept this challenge? You see, they're looking from the outside. They're looking from the outside, and on the outside, they don't see a way that they can win. Goliath assumed that his considerable size, armor, and vast experience And with his God backing him was all that he needed to be victorious over anyone. This was no longer just physical warfare. This was spiritual, theological warfare. Let's look at the king. The king, King Saul. Now, we know already that it's said of of Saul that he, from the shoulders up, was taller than everyone else. Now, you think about this in Israel, that... If there were anyone who had the physical size to possibly take on Goliath, who was it? It was Saul. It was the man who is head and shoulders taller than everyone else in the rest of the land. So what's going on here? Not only this, but what's interesting to me, does anybody remember from last week, the nation of Israel, they come to Saul and they say, hey, we want a king, and here's why we want a king. Number one, they said we want to be like everyone else, but what else did they say? We want a king who will fight our battles. How's Saul doing living up to that job description? (laughs) Performance review, F, right? He does not pass. Saul, you get a demotion the next year. They want a king that will fight their battles. They say, we want a king who will go before us and fight our battles. And Saul says, no, thank you. I'm happy here in my tent where it's nice and comfortable. So he doesn't fulfill his duties. Next, let's look at his resources. Besides, if Goliath had intimidating weapons, so did Saul. 
verse 17, uh, 38 and 39. Let's look at those verses real quick. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put on a, a bronze helmet on David's head, had him put on armor. David strapped on his sword over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not able to use them. He was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. All right, so let's look at this. Let's compare this. What did Goliath have? What did the giant have? He had a helmet, he had armor, he had sword, and he had one additional thing. He had a spear. What does Saul have? He had a helmet, he had armor, and he at least had a sword. So when you look at their resources, Saul more, should have been more than prepared to go out and face this giant. In fact, we know from earlier verses, earlier story, that probably David and, uh, excuse me, Saul and Jonathan, his son, were the only two that had swords in all of the Israelite army. So if anyone was equipped with the resources to do it, it's Saul. Now let's think about his experience. Let's think about Saul's experience. In verse 17.10, let's read what it says about the giant. It says that Goliath, the Philistine, said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so that we can fight each other. So he comes out and he defies the ranks of Israel. Now, the last time in the book of 1 Samuel that we read the word defy or defiance comes back in chapter 11. When Saul has been anointed king, but he hasn't yet proven himself, so the people aren't willing to, face, uh, to, to acknowledge him as king. And we read that one of the Ammonite kings comes out in a hash, and he defies the Israelites. So Saul rises up, and he goes out, and he kills him. And he leads the Israelites to victory. So there's a direct comparison that Saul has the experience. The writer's trying to tell us, look, Saul has the experience. There's been others who've defied God before, and Saul took care of them. Saul's a seasoned warrior. So we see that he has the experience. So if anyone in Israel had the ability, the stature, the resources, the experience, we can see clearly that Saul should have been the one to go against the king, if we're, against the giant, if we're looking for, from a human point of view. But there's one more character that we haven't considered yet. And that's the youth. The youth. Let's read a couple verses of what we hear about this youth named David. Let's look at verse 12. Verse 12 tells us this. It says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons during Saul's reign and was already an old man. So, Saul's not even, uh, David's not even introduced as a man. He's introduced as what? The son of a man. The son of the man. This is no man. This is no experienced warrior. He's the son of a man. Let's keep going. Verse 14, what does it say? Verse 14, and David was the youngest of the three oldest that, uh, the three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend to his father's flock in Bethlehem. So he's the son of the man, son of a man. He's the youngest, and shepherding was the absolute lowest job that you could have. So as far as his stature, David has none. David has absolutely no stature. This youth has no stature to be able to stand against this giant. Let's look at his resources. Verse thirty-three. Verse thirty-three tells us this. It says, you can't go and fight the Philistine, you're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. He continues on in verse 43, we read this, we read about David putting on and taking off. He said, 
David puts on and takes off the armor that we read about earlier. And then in 43, Goliath looks at him. He's like, this kid doesn't even have armor on. You're coming at me with sticks. Like, here I am, a tank, and you're coming, and you're beating on me with sticks. This is a joke. When it comes to resources, the youth has none. And lastly, we look at the experience. Verses 23 through 25. Pay attention to how many times we read the word man. And as we read these, I want you to to understand that man implies experience, someone who's seasoned. Verse 23, says, while he was speaking to them, this is David, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him, terrified. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter. The king will also make the household of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. Think there's an emphasis there? An emphasis on someone who has experience? What do we know about David? We've already seen that he's introduced as a youth, as the son of a man, that he's the youngest and that he has the lowliest job. So when it comes to experience, from a human perspective, David has absolutely nothing. David has no stature, no resources, no experience. And Goliath and Saul were absolutely wrong in, in, in assuming that victory came with an exclusive reliance upon stature, resources, and experience. See, in, both, in Saul's mind, Didi didn't even play a figure in their calculus. But in David's arithmetic, it did. And in David's arithmetic, his stature and resources and experience were founded upon God, and the rest is history. Chapter 16, when Samuel's looking to anoint the next king, God tells him, hey, don't, don't look as man looks. Don't look at the outside. For God sees the heart. Man looks at the outside, but God sees the heart. So this description of, of the giant from the outside, the description that we have of Saul, is one that only looks from the outside. And when Israel looked from the outside, they were defeated. They were terrified. And they were afraid. You see, when we look as man does, it leads us to fear and defeat. But when we look as God does, it leads us to faith and victory. When we look as man does, it leads us to fear and defeat. The armies of of Israel were already defeated. They had already gone back to their tents. You see, running away from the battle was, in a sense, running towards worship of Dagon, the false god. Yet David, we know, looks as God does, and he's led to faith and victory. So let's look at David, no longer the youth, no longer the helpless one with no stature, resources, or experience. Verse uh, verse 7 in chapter 16, we read this. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. Man does not see what God sees, for man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Earlier in chapter 15, when Saul is rejected as king, Samuel tells him, the Lord is now seeking a man after his own heart to be king. In the very next chapter, David is anointed as king. Throughout scripture, we read about David being a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. This is a man who has a heart for God. And that's what his stature is. It's not this little boy. 
is nothing other than a heart for God. David's stature is a heart for God. In fact, it's, it's interesting that here's this teenager who comes to the battle lines and he looks at the armies of Israel and the men around him and he encourages them to take heart. Take heart. He reminds them, hey, we serve. We serve the most powerful God on earth. Our stature is not in our size. Our stature is in our heart for God. He will fight our battles. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus says, uh, excuse me, what David says about his resources. What resources does David have to fight this giant? Look at verse 45. David tells us exactly what his resources are. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with dagger, spear, and sword. How many things are listed there? Dagger, spear, and sword. Three things. Now listen to this. Then David says, but I come to you against, I come against you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel's, whom you have defied. How many things does David list? Three things, but it's all one, right? David's resource is the name of God. He says, you have all these physical weapons, but I've got something even more powerful. I've got the name of God. The name of God is my resource, and it's in that powerful name that I'm going to kill you, cut your head off, and feed you the birds, right? Lastly, let's look at David's experience. In verses 34 through 37, Saul challenges David. He says, you can't go against this warrior. You have no experience. But here, the man with the heart of God, this is what he says. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it. I struck it down and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by the fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed the lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So what is David's experience? David's experience is in the deliverance of God. He has a history with God. These big, powerful, strong animals, God's already delivered me from them. In fact, what's really interesting is that as, as Samuel is recording these words, in verse 35, David says, hey, I've gone out after the lion and bear. Verse 55 of the same chapter, we read that David goes out against Goliath. Pretty interesting. We read, David says that the lion and the bear rose against me. And in verse 48, we read that Goliath rose to attack David. Interesting. David says that he would strike the lion and the bear. He promises in verse 46 to strike Goliath, and later, verses 49 through 50, we read that he struck Goliath down. David said that he would grab the beast, in verse 35, and kill it. And in verse 50, we read that David defeated Goliath, and he kills Goliath. The same two words are used again. Truly, this uncircumcised Philistine did become just like one of those animals. David says, man, this guy who's defying the armies of Israel, he's no different than the animals. And the writer tells us by his actions that David was exactly right. Because of David's previous experience depending on God, he experienced the deliverance of God. So what are, what are our resources that we have? We have the same resources available to us that David did. We have a heart for God. 
Heart for God, what is that? It's when we value the things that God values. When we say yes to the things that God says yes to and no to the things that God says no to. What are our resources? Our resources are that we have the name of God. This is an exercise of faith to engage the enemy, not with human resources, not with our our own strength, with our own power, but in the name of God. And finally, the deliverance of God. This is depending on his power, his word, his ways, and his timing, and not our own. And this is only gained over time. It's gained over time. I get the sense from David that even though he's a young man, he spent many years out in that field. And he spent a lot of time talking with God. And he spent a lot of time experiencing God's deliverance over and over and over again. And so he becomes strengthened and encouraged. The giant, as we said earlier, we often read about this and we read about the giant as being a bully or some big task that we have to overcome and that if we just trust in God enough, we can do the big things that David did. But the text gives us a little bit more. We read about Goliath. What was he doing? He would come out front and what would he do? He would defy the nation of Israel. He would defy the God of Israel. So I want to I encourage you to think of a giant in your life this way. It's not some insurmountable task that you have to face. The giant, the giant is anything that defies God. Anything that goes against God and his word. Now, I want to be careful here because I think most of us, when we think about giants, we think about the culture around us. We turn on the TV and we see all these things that defy the word of God, that go against the word of God. And we're very quick, aren't we, to stand up and say, yeah, that's wrong. We should fight against this. We should picket this. We should yell against this. We should stand up against this sin. But I want to challenge you to think a little bit differently this morning. I want you to think about the giants in your own life. The very things in your own life that you know stand in direct contrast to the word of God. That perhaps you try to find a way to excuse. Or perhaps you're too terrified to face because you've been facing it with the wrong stature, resources, and experience. I'm just going to name a few things here, but uh, I want you to seriously consider these. Your priorities. When you think about what is most important to you, where you spend your time, your energy, your your money, your physical resources, where you spend those, do they line up with what the Word of God says? Is your schedule so full that you have no room for relationships? It's really hard to love your neighbor when you don't ever spend time with your neighbor. It's really hard to love God when you don't ever spend time with God. What about, are you taking time to rest? Do you have a day in the week where you are taking a Sabbath? Do we believe that God's word has good things for us? That God doesn't want us just to take a day just because he told us to take a day, but there's actually something good that comes out of having rest. Periods where we're not working, where we're focusing our attention on him. When it comes to loving your neighbors, look to your right. Right now. Look to your left. Are you loving those who are right now physically your neighbor? What I mean by that is, are you using your God-given gifts and abilities to serve those in your church? We know that God has given us spiritual gifts. 
And it, we, Scripture tells us that he's given us those gifts to build up the body. That body is not just a reference to the general universal church, but to a local body. Are you using your gifts, talents, and abilities to serve those around you, to build up his kingdom, that other people would go deeper in relationship with him? Are you contributing or consuming when it comes to church? What about your marriage? Now, this may challenge some people here, but are you living in a biblical marriage? Are you living where the husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Wives, are you submitting to your husbands and respecting them? Husbands and fathers, are you leading? Are you exasperating your children? Children, are you obeying your parents? For this pleases the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything. Colossians 3.20 tells us, for this pleases the Lord. Is your household in order in a way that honors God? Now, I know for some of us, that's, that's a difficult thing to hear because we have a lot of movements out there that men and women are equal, that there's no difference, right? And when it comes to value, that is absolutely correct. There is absolutely no difference between men and women in terms of value. But God has ordained a structure. God has ordained a structure in the family. And structure does not indicate value. Are you willing to submit to what God's word says? Or are you going to flee from it because I don't like it? I don't want to do it because it doesn't match what I think. Lastly, I would challenge you to think about what you view, what you consume when it comes to entertainment, when it comes to media of all different sources. Are there giants in your life? Are there things in your life that are standing in direct opposition to God? And are you willing to take up his, his stature his resources, and his experience to overcome these. I think most of us, we recognize these things and and we're either too terrified to face them because we know that it'll make us so different from the rest of the world or we're terrified to face them because we've tried to face them in the past and been conquered by them. My question to you is, if you've faced these things in the past and been conquered by them, when you faced it, did you rely on your own resources, your own stature, your own experience? Or did you come at them with with the heart for God, with the name of God, and with the deliverance of God in your mind? See, what I love about David is that David gets so ticked off that someone would dare insult his God, that someone would dare stand and defy God. He understands that he's fighting for God's namesake, for God's reputation, and for God's glory. And he says, hey, I'm ready to go. God's going to deliver me. I've got this. Army of Israel, we've got this. Our God is way more powerful, and he's doing way more than what's just on the surface. I want to challenge you this week. I want to challenge you to fight for God's namesake. I want to challenge you to fight for his reputation and his glory because the giants in our life that are, that are defying God, that are detracting from God's name, his glory, and his reputation, they're not out there in the world. They're in us. And they need to be killed. Are you willing to kill the giants in your life? Are you willing to take a moment and say, God, what in my life is standing in direct opposition to you and to your word? Would you give me the stature, the resources, and the experience to kill it? God, you will deliver me. I want us to to take two. Take two is a time in our message when we just take two minutes 
and we write in our bulletin what God is saying to us. What is God saying to you this morning? I really want to encourage you. I think every single one of us, when we, when we recognize that the giant in this story is not some bully, but rather it's, it's the thing in our life that stands in direct opposition to God and his word and his ways, I want to challenge you to write that down in your bulletin. What is my giant? And then I want you to ask God to help you kill it, to help you rely on him, that his name, his reputation, and his glory would be expanded. Let's take two.